we are living at the end of earth's history. Brothers and sisters, you and I are Seventh-day Adventists. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. We are not a deceived people. We are people of this book. And today, and during this weekend, as we look at the period of time in which we now find ourselves, right down at the end of the end of the history of this old earth, except there's another 1,000 years further for it to exist. But pray God, none of us will be on that earth during that 1,000 years. Pray God that we will not. I don't know how old I was, but I know I was under, probably under 10 years of age, when all of a sudden, I don't know why, I thought of the year 2000. I mean, it was an eternity away. I was born in 1933, and uh, in my calculations I thought, I'll be an old man, 67. Now, I wasn't quite accurate because... I will be 66, of course, when the year 2000 commences. Before it ends, of course, I will be 67. But this age 67 was in my mind as a, a little boy. I didn't imagine some grey-haired old man, someone with aches and pains. I didn't uh, imagine the wrinkles. I imagined none of these things except that I couldn't possibly imagine being that old because everyone, 67, and a long way less, of course, were very ancient, very ancient. But you know, little by little, little by little, in God's preserving grace, I have come closer and closer and closer to that age that I had in mind if God would spare me to go into another century. Now I know there are many technical arguments that the 20th century does not conclude until December 31, 2000. Technically that is correct. But you know the way the world is thinking, the new millennium starts on January 1, 2000, not January 1, 2001. And I suppose we uh, need to follow the fashion because that is in the mind. We are moving from the 1900s, no question of that, into the 2000s. You know, when I look back and I think to myself, there are going to be a few, very, very, very few, but there are going to be people who will have lived in three different centuries. Isn't that right? Those, some of them will be 99, when the year 2000, they're going to turn. But when the year 2000, they will be passing on. They will be 100 years old. Others will be 101, 2, 3. There will be others, even maybe 107, 108. I once had a, a patient in Australia who became the oldest person, a Seventh-day Adventist, 
in the state of uh, Victoria. She lived to be 108 years and eight months. And at the time of her death, she was the oldest citizen of the state. And I can remember visiting her in the Adventist Retirement Centre, this little old lady, and she said to me, Oh, Dr. Standish, I've been sickly all my life. I said, Mrs. Potter, tell me, how can I be sickly like you? <laughs> and... Uh, I can still remember her 85-year-old son in the same old people's home. And I can still see her grey-haired granddaughter, who was a grandmother, of course, herself, coming to see her. And it looked so strange as she put her arms around this little old grandma and this old grey-haired lady said, Oh, grandma! Good to see you. Uh, you see, some people can extend if they're born right at the end of one century and their lives can extend into three centuries, into a third century. Lots of people only live in one century. My parents were born in 1912. Dad died 18 months ago. He didn't quite make it to the second century. His whole life, was in the 20th century, even though he lived to 85 years of age. But God, if it is his will, will take us uh, just a few more months and we will pass in to the year 2000. Now, of course, we don't see that year as being per se of any significance. This is the result of uh, calculations which are not particularly accurate of how long it is since Christ's birth. We know that uh, they're probably out by three or four years. But nevertheless, the mind of the world is centering on this year, 2000. And we need to center not so much on the year 2000 but on the fact that the year 2000 is one of the years at the end of time, just as 1999 is one of those years. And we need to be thinking about it. Brothers and sisters, I have not come here this weekend in order for us to have some frivolous or ineffectual meeting, even though I realize that I myself cannot bring a message that is of any significance whatsoever. But the Holy Spirit can. And he can use every one of us to bring such messages. And I know that each one of you has been praying and praying earnestly that God will bring a message to his people this weekend. We cannot afford to have holy convocations and go away unchanged by the messages of the Word of God. The subject which I have chosen to speak upon is 1999. Less than six months to the year 2000. Will Revelation 13 soon be fulfilled? Will it?
Now that is a question that each one of us should be asking ourselves. Because I believe, my dear brothers and sisters, that we are living in the last days of earth's history. And in those last days, the mighty prophecy of the 13th chapter of Revelation will be fulfilled. Indeed, all the portents are that it is now being fulfilled. You'll remember that the 13th chapter deals with the two superpowers at the end of time. One of ferocious power, represented by a leopard with the mouth of a lion and the feet of a bear. My dear brothers and sisters, if a lion or a leopard or a bear came rushing into this tent, I don't think we'd all sit there in equanimity this evening. There would be a sense of terror. And maybe even I might break a record of uh, speed that I thought unable to accomplish a ferocious, a fierce beast. We know what those four beasts represented in Daniel 7. They represented the mighty pagan empires which opposed the truth of the God of heaven. The Lion of Babylon, the Bear of Medo-Persia, and of course the Leopard of Greece. And here, at the end of time, is to be a power, both political and religious, which combines all the hateful characteristics of the pagan empires of the Old Testament era and covers it with a facade of Christianity. We know what that power is. For there are many criteria. The old European reformers had no doubt what was represented by that first beast. Whether it be Martin Luther or John Calvin or Zwingli, whether it be John Knox, John Wesley, all those men pointed the finger at one power and one power alone. And that was the papacy. Now, of course, these men were not right in everything. And we cannot accept it just on the basis of their say-so. Godly men as they were. The issuing last, initially, May 31, but it was not publicly issued until July 7 of the Pope's letter, Dies Domini, caused my brother and I to write yet another book. Uh, I have that book there, here. The Pope's Letter and Sunday Laws. This is a letter for Seventh-day, this is a book for Seventh-day Adventists, but more, it is also a book for every individual who can read the English language. When I started to read, uh, write the section that I was writing and I stated that that beast represented the papacy or in political terms today the Holy See or the Vatican, that little minuscule nation of only 40 hectares, 108 acres, 
Loads of farms are much bigger than that around the world. It is of no significance, one would think. And yet, it is characterized in the book of Revelation in chapter 30 as the mightiest nation upon earth. You know, George Bush boasted when the Soviet Union fractionated into 15 constituent nations that now the United States was unchallenged as the one superpower of the world. How wrong was George Bush? Yes, the United States was the second most powerful nation on earth. And in military terms, easily the most powerful nation. But my dear brothers and sisters, the power that rules the world today is that little nation of 40 hectares. There are not many nations that in a very short time one can walk around the border. Try to do that in Australia and it would take you quite a time to walk around the border of Australia, but not the Vatican. Something that can be done so easily and just in a matter that can be counted in minutes. And you have surrounded an entire sovereign nation. And yet, the Bible presents it as the mighty superpower at the end of time. A power that can bring an economic boycott to every nation on earth, including the United Kingdom. Make no mistake about that. And also a death decree. But it does not do it alone. It has to have power. And I will be speaking on Sunday morning and taking another look with you about what has just been transpiring in the nation of Serbia and in the province of Kosovo. I wonder if Seventh-day Adventists have been following what NATO has been doing. Do we realize how small Serbia is? Of course, in Australia, many nations seem very small in Europe in relationship to our side. But I live in Victoria. That state is the second smallest state. It doesn't even represent 3% of the whole continent. That's how small it is. Two point something percent of Australia is encompassed by the state of Victoria. Very small part. And yet Serbia would fit two and a half times into Victoria. Now, I look at my own state and I say to myself, if there were hundreds and thousands of bombers coming over and then loading their deadly cargo every day to the state of Vic, I don't know what could be left. And yet it is two and a half times larger than the whole of Serbia, and I'm including uh, Kosovo in that territory. And I want to look at that Sunday morning in the light of the prophecy, in the light of the times in which we live, in the light of what NATO means to the world and to the fulfillment of these prophecies. It's time for us as Seventh-day Adventists to be alert. <clears throat> it's time for us 
to read. And I wanted to be sure as we wrote this book that we could convince non-believers, even people who had no religious convictions at all, that the first beast of Revelation 13 was the papacy. And that Martin Luther was absolutely and utterly correct in his identification and also all the other reformers. And so I thought, well, there are several equivalent symbols which are used in Scripture. In uh, Daniel chapter 7, there is the little horn, which is the same as the first beast, and we'll see why in a moment. And then I thought of 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of sin, the son of perdition. Another equivalent symbol of that first beast. And then I thought of 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 4, and uh, 2 John, the Antichrist, another equivalent. And then Babylon. And then uh, the war of Revelation 17. And so I said to myself, but how do we know they are equivalent terms? And I did something that perhaps I shouldn't have waited uh, 65 years to do. I set myself a table. It's just here on this page. You, you won't be able to read it, but uh, I'll just explain. This was just for myself. I had never done this. Here I've been a pastor for so many years, and I myself did not sit down. Oh, yes, I believed they were the same, but I had not proved it to myself. And so I put on the top here, little horn, man of sin, son of perdition, antichrist, beast of Revelation 13, Babylon, beast of Revelation 17, and uh, the war. And then down here, I wrote the criteria which were found in each one of these symbols and prophecies. Now, of course, not all of them had all the symbols, although Revelation 13 did. But not all of them had every one of those symbols. But as I made up this list, I found that the overlap, the concurrence of, of criteria was so powerful that they just have to be the same entity as the beast of Revelation 13. The reformers were absolutely correct. So then I sat down and I decided that I would look at how many criteria there were. And in this book, I started to write them down one at a time. Brothers and sisters, by the time I had finished, I had found 81 identifying features or criteria of the beast of Revelation 13 and its equivalent symbols. 81. I don't believe that you can search Scripture and find any other entity 
in the whole of prophecy where you will find 81 criteria. Some of those criteria can be shared with other nations. For example, the persecution of the saints. Oh yes, it applies to the papacy, but you know that Nero persecuted the saints, Diocletian persecuted the saints, in many countries, Islam has persecuted the saints. The Roman Catholic Church, yes, has. Communism has. You cannot say that that is a pathognomonic criterion. But there are some which belong to the papacy and the papacy alone. The reason that on seven occasions, twice in Daniel, five times in Revelation, the period of papal dominance is stated in various terms so that we can be absolutely certain is because no other power on earth has ever ruled for 1,260 years. This country led a mighty empire, the British Empire. But for how long? Oh yes, at Zenith it ruled a quarter of the world. But even if we take the extremes of the British Empire, no more than 300 years. And that's probably being a little generous. A little generous. Oh yes, as a boy... In school, I used to look at the atlas and see all those red countries all over the place. More than 70 of them. And in a strange way, this little Australian boy felt very proud that our country was painted red too. We did. Australians are a bit different today, the younger generation but we were proud to be part of the British Empire. But 1,200 years? Nowhere near it. Nowhere near it. The Roman Empire? Mighty. In round figures, 500 years. Still far short. Only one empire even came close to 1,260 years. And that was the Holy Roman Empire. You remember in the year 800 that Charlemagne went down to the Vatican and he was crowned emperor by Pope Leo III. And the Holy Roman Empire was to persist till the year 1806 during the Napoleonic War when three of its constituent nations, Bavaria, Württemberg and Baden left the empire and the emperor decided that there was no longer any point in continuing the Holy Roman Empire. And so Francis II went back to his native Austria and ruled just the country of which he was the monarch. 1,008 years but still short by 252 years of the period of papal domination. No other nation, not one, 
could fulfill that prophecy. If that was the only one, what other nation uprooted three other nations? You know, we can look at the Western Europeans today. Some of us here are descended from those Western Europeans. Let us never forget that they were barbaric pagan tribes. You know, that's what our ancestors, those of us who are, uh, are from Western Europe generation, like myself and like some of you here, they were barbaric people. They were uncouth people. They were not sanctified people. I praise God that somehow Christianity was brought to those treacherous tribes. And little by little, down to we who have the greater blessing of all, Seventh-day Adventists. God can take people with the barbaric and the pagan genes that we possess and he can make them holy here. He can. But those ten nations which were so powerful that they led to the decimation of the, of the imperial Roman Empire Yes, we can find seven of them today in general terms. The Alemanni are the Germans, still a mighty race. The Anglo-Saxons are the English. You ought to know a little about them. And then there are the Franks, the French, the Burgundians, the Swiss, the Lombards, the Italians, the Suavi, the Portuguese, and the Visigoths, the Spaniards. But what about the other three? You can search back and forth across Europe, north, south, east, west, diagonally, you will not find the Herali, you will not find the Vandals, and you will not find the Ostrogoths, despite the fact that in the year, up till the year 538, they were still powerful enough to keep the Pope out of Rome and to rule that city. By the year 500, and 54, they vanished from the face of the earth. Three horns were uprooted. Only one nation, and that is the Vatican, was responsible for that. 81 criteria. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to say it looks or it may be that the beast of Revelation 13 is the papacy, it is so solid that God gave us 81 distinguishing features, 64 of which have already been fulfilled and another 17 will be fulfilled later as Jesus comes, including the destruction of that power, which of course is yet future. When God wants us to understand something, he not only gets the hammer and nails the nail in, he also gets and nails it deep and deeper and deeper and deeper till no individual guided by the Holy Spirit can be in the least doubt. The second beast of Revelation 13 was represented as a lamb. Now if a lamb walked in here, we'd have a different reaction to the leopard, the lion, and the bear that we just spoke about, wouldn't we? 
How many of you would go fleeing out in terror if a little lovely little lamb walked in? We'd sit there, the children would probably go over and give it a pat and be really uh, interested that the little lamb had come in. So gentle, so meek, so mild. You know, my first appointment as a school teacher was way out the back of New South Wales and they had huge uh, sheep farms. And I used to walk in great paddocks of sheep all around me. Do you think I was going like this all the time? It didn't worry me at all. And these were adult sheep, let alone a little lamb. But significantly, these two co-superpowers at the end of time had one matter in common. And I want to read it to you from Revelation 13. The first beast, if we read verse 2, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Where did his authority come from? From the dragon. Well, what about the second beast? This little gentle lamb-like beast. Read verse 11 of Revelation 13. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamp. And he spake as a dragon. The commonality between the two superpowers at the end of time is both are motivated by the dragon. It's strange, isn't it? Here is the most populous religious power on earth, the Roman Catholic Church, the Vatican, the papacy, whatever term we want to use. It calls itself Christian Church. To many people, it is the acme of Christianity, not just to a few people, not just to people who claim to be Christian. When you work, as I did for many years, amongst Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists, you find that most of them, when they're thinking in typical terms of Christianity, they think of the Roman Catholic Church. That, to them, is normality of Christianity. What a tragedy. For they're not under the power. The Bible plainly states, not under the power of Christ, but under the power of the dragon. And I believe today... It's virtually true in the Christian world. There is no more religious nation than the second beast, the United States of America. Oh, I know you talk to Americans and many of them say, oh, and there are terrible things happening there. But you go there. Any time of the day, you can pick up radio stations that are Christian radio stations. You try and find that in Australia. I dare say in this country. You can't do it. The only way there's any religion on the radio in Australia is that the government demands two hours of religious program, not necessarily Christian, but religious programming of every radio station once every week. And I tell you, they do everything they can to get as far away from religion and yet 
sort of fulfill the rules. You know, they'll get into sociology and uh, anthropology and all this sort of uh, excuses for religion because they know no one wants to advertise on their programs if it's a Christian program. But not in America. We have all these Christian coalitions there. We have even presidents like Jimmy Carter saying, I'm a born-again Christian. If any Australian politician said that, he would be doomed. He'd never admit to his Christian commitment. Never. That would be a sure sign of getting the voters offside. But not in the United States, in certain areas. And yet it also, not under Christ, the end of time, we're speaking in the uh, corporate sense, but under the dragon. Now you all know who the dragon is. The previous chapter is its own interpreter, isn't it? Verse 7 of chapter 12, uh, <coughs> sorry, verse 9 of chapter 12, and the dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan. God wanted us to be sure that we knew who the dragon was. The serpent, the devil, the Satan. All synonymous terms. And in case when we were reading through the scripture, we didn't catch what was said. If you go over to chapter 20 and verse 2, it's repeated, isn't it? Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2, and there it is repeated. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So here is the tragic situation of our world at the end of time. Very tragic. Because the two superpowers at the end of time are under the control of Satan, both with a facade of Christianity. That is what makes it all the more tragic and deceptive. And we are told in Revelation 13, verse 3, And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and the deadly wound was healed, and all the world wandered after the beast. Now, you can understand if Christians maybe wandered after the beast. All the world. You know, it is unbelievable how this has happened. Until 1929, from 1870, when Garibaldi united Italy, and... Uh, included the papal states within the uh, kingdom of Italy as it was at that time under King Victor Emmanuel. No pope left that little 40 hectare country. They voluntarily called themselves prisoners of the Vatican. Almost 60 years once a pope was elected and some of them remained for a long time because the Pope in 1870 was the longest ruling Pope in the whole history of the papacy, Pope Pius IX. And what an evil work that man did. 
and he was succeeded by the second longest reigning pope of all time, Pope Leo XIII, even more evil. And he was selected because he was a, an old man. They didn't want an everlasting pope. That's what some of them said. I'm using their words. They were tired of a pope that ruled for so long. And so they decided that they would get a cardinal who was old. And to their shock, he lived well into his 90s and became the second longest ruling pope, Pope Leo XIII, who died in 1903 and uh, commenced to rule in uh, 1878. Pope Leo XIII never stepped out that little 40 hectare. He was succeeded, succeeded by Pope Leo, uh, Pope Pius X, who ruled for about 10 years, and who is only one of the three popes in the last half millennium who has been canonized made a saint. And he never left the Vatican. And he was followed by Pope Benedict the 15th. And he never left the Vatican. And then came Pope Pius XI, the one who, who himself refused to sign the Concordat, the Lateran Treaty. What a pride that Pope had. Because Benito Mussolini had asked King Victor Emmanuel to sign that Lateran Treaty, and he refused. He must have had more to him than most people thought, King Victor Emmanuel II. But he said to Mussolini, if you want to see that territory as an independent nation, you must sign it yourself. You take the responsibility as king, I will not take that responsibility. When the Pope heard that, he said, if the king is not signing, neither is the Pope. And he sent Cardinal Gaspari, his Secretary of State, what we might call the Foreign Minister. And so two secondary leaders of the country, Mussolini for Italy and Cardinal Gaspari for the Vatican, signed the Lateran Treaty. And then, for the first time for virtually 60 years, a pope stepped across the road. That's all you have to do. I'm sure many of you have been to the Vatican. And the border, there's no border there. There's just a busy Roman road going by. But the moment you go into that road, you have left the boundary of the Vatican. And you are in what is now the Republic of Italy. But it took almost 60 years for that to happen. And in that confined situation, the influence of the papacy was greatly diminished. But now the world was open. The Lateran Treaty was signed. And the popes, very slowly at first, started to take their trips outside the 40 hectares. <coughs> Until now we have a pope who has visited more nations, 
than perhaps any other national leader during the tenure of the occupation of that post. We now have a nation that has more ambassadors which come to its door than any other nation on earth. But the Bible saw it. God who sees the future as clearly as he sees the past had said, and all the world wondered after the beast. I remember when the Pope came to Thailand, the kingdom of Thailand, where it was my privilege to work for six years for the saving of souls. 94% of those citizens are Buddhist, 94. Another 5% are Islamic, that makes 99. Another 0.4 are Hindu, that's 99.4%. Another 0.3% are animus, spirit worshippers. That makes 99.7% of the population. And the rest... 0.3 a nominal Christian. But the Pope dared to come to that country. The Asian Games have been held in Bangkok three times. No other nation, not even Japan or Korea or China or any of these major Asian nations have held it more than once. But Bangkok had such a fine and large athletic stadium that it's been held there three times. And that's where the Pope came. The stands were packed beyond capacity. This country, with 94% Buddhists, 5% Muslims, and only 0.3%, only three in every thousand, even professing to be Christians. And I want to tell you, some of them who profess to be Christians are, are almost more pagan than the pagans. And I saw the pictures of the attendants and there were just masses of saffron robes. You know who wear the saffron robes? The Buddhist monks. They were there in their thousands wandering after the beast. When the Pope went to Singapore, another non-Christian nation, no head of state, in the whole history of that nation has ever been accorded the massive welcome that the Pope received. When he came to Australia, supposedly a predominant Protestant nation, I happened to be speaking in the city of Adelaide the day he came there. It was in the evening, at night. You couldn't move for the masses that were lining the roadway along which he was to travel. And the paper reported that a large number of them were Protestants because the state of South Australia is the least of Catholics, percentage of Catholics of any state in Australia. Very few. Now the reason for that is that very few Irish migrants went there. That's, that's the main reason. And uh, they were mainly Protestants that went there. And yet... That day, you would have thought the Lord was coming back, the number who wanted to see this man of sin come to our city. I did not bother. I did not bother uh, to see him. But I saw the crowds. All the world wandered after the beast. 
This is fulfilling before our eyes. And then you people are so aware of the letter Deus Domini last year. The day of the Lord. And that man so misused scripture. Oh, how tragic it was that in the South Pacific record, that's our church division paper, was an article on the Pope's letter. The writer was a professor of theology at Avondale College. Do you know what he commented about Deus Domini, the day of the Lord or the Lord's day letter? He said it was Christ-centered and salvation-centered. Professor of theology ordained credential Seventh-day Adventist minister whose brother is working in this division as your ministerial secretary wrote and whose uncle used to be the president of this division, Pastor E.E. E. Roanfelt, some of you will remember him. His descendant wrote that the Pope's letter on Sunday observance was Christ-centered. My dear brothers and sisters, it's time for us to say it was anti-Christ-centered. And he said it was salvation-centered. It was eternal oblivion-centered. He commented the Pope on his great scholarship. The first ten words said, the Lord's Day as Sunday has been called since apostolic times. First ten words of the Pope's letter. I have never read such weak scholarship as that. The only reason you would give the Pope an F for his scholarship is that we don't grade any lower than F. My dear brothers and sisters, that is the thinking of Protestants today. And then we come to November last year when the Pope goes to his highest form of communication, a papal bull. That is the highest communications that the Pope ever puts out. What he said, Deus Domini, was his third highest, an apostolic letter. And, of course, a papal encyclical is the second level. level. But he rose to something that is used very infrequently, a papal bull. And this country ought to know what papal bulls can do because in the reign of King John, you'll remember that this country was put under an interdict by Pope Innocent III by a papal bull. And the king and the nation were just crushed to their knees. In fact, England in that period in the 13th century, became just a vassal state paying tribute in order to have the approval, to get the approval back so that the people, uh, marriages could be performed, so the people could be buried in so-called sanctified ground, so that uh, penance could be done and all these sorts of things that the Pope had prohibited when King John decided that he could oppose the Pope. These papal bulls have been very powerful in time. But what has he done this time? What he has done is that he said there's going to be a holy year for the year 2000. 
but he's generous in his definition of a year because it is, as you know, a uh, leap year, the year 2000. So there are 366 uh, days in the year 2000. But he's going to take it to 378. By starting at Christmas Day this year, this very year, six days before the end of the year, and going into the year 2001 for another six days to the Feast of Epiphany. And that is the holy year. Six days before, six days after, and all the year 2000 in between. 378 days. And he said in that year, anyone who does the following deeds will receive an indulgence which will shorten their time or the time of some loved one in purgatory. Brothers and sisters, it was these indulgences that split the Christian church in the time of Martin Luther. Is that not so? What vile things those indulgences were. You read Great Controversy where Sister White tells us that Tetzel would come along in great display and pomp and say that God was coming with him. And then he would offer indulgences. Of course, a gold coin had to be placed in the box. You could do it blasphemously, blasphemously for your past sins and for all sins you may commit in the future, even if you are not repentant of those sins. That's what he told the people. And if you think that is some Protestant scaremonger, my dear brothers and sisters, go and read Great Controversy and you will see that Sister White confirms that. That is what was done at that time. What blasphemy! Terrible blasphemy, my dear brothers and sisters. And then he said, if you put the money in the box for some other one who was in purgatory, say your father, your mother or your loved one, the very instant that the sound of the clink of the coin was in the box. That loved one would flee from purgatory and be on their way to heaven. It's a very interesting. Can you imagine the people hearing that clink and knowing their loved one was out of purgatory and on his way to heaven? That destroyed. It severed. It brought the greatest schism. Praise the Lord, that schism came in the Christian faith in the days of Martin Luther. And now in November 1998, the Pope has the gall to offer indulgences again to those who go to Mass in certain specified cathedrals. And then he opened, those who say certain rosary prayers and so forth. But then he opened it up further. He said, if we go and we visit someone in jail, or some handicapped person, or do some good deed during that period, there will be an indulgence for the individual. And do you know why he had added these others? It was said he, in the Australian newspapers he added it in order to compound the ecumenical spirit so that Protestants too could have 
the benefit of these indulgences. Here is the Pope promoting that which he knew for well had split the Christian church. Now he's seeing it as something to unify the Christian church. You have just lost in this country Basil Cardinal Hume. The Roman Catholic primate of England and Archbishop of Westminster. I've been appalled at the sentiments that have been expressed. Look, it's always sad when the individual dies. We're, we're not talking on a personal level here. Uh, and whether he be a Catholic prelate or what, his eternal destiny is now sealed. Only God knows what that destiny is. So it's been a solemn moment in his life. And so I'm not speaking in any way in personal terms. But he has been exalted for his position, for his post, for what he has done. You know, in the, in the London Daily Telegraph, and I thought you might be interested, you wouldn't want to hear something that's too old-fashioned. This is dated July 1, 1999. Is that close enough for uh, you to think it's uh, time? There's an interesting article. I don't know whether anyone read it. You got it. Did you read that? I, I, I'd never heard of this man. Uh, his name is Niall Ferguson. But I tell you, this man has courage. He's a, a scholar. He's a fellow and tutor in modern history at Jesus College, Oxford University. But the title of the article, A Catholic Britain Would Be No Cause for Rejoicing. It's about time someone told the British that. You know, in the late 18th century, only 2% of Englishmen were Roman Catholics. 2%. Now it's virtually 10%. That's the rise in that period. And make no mistake, there's much more dedication in 10% of Roman Catholics than in 90% of the rest. Because Protestantism in this country and in most countries of the Western world is an abject disgrace. And that includes Australia. It is weak, it is feeble. But let me read you one or two of the insightful things. Look, I believe most Seventh-day Adventists would be too timid to speak this way. It's about time there were some Englishmen who would stand up and call a spade a spade. And Niall Ferguson, in a pleasant way, has done that. Listen to a little of what he said as published yesterday in the London Daily Telegraph. Speaking of the outflow of eulogies about the death of Basil Cardinal Hume, he said, Indeed, a newspaper reading visitor from, say, Poland might have been forgiven for thinking he was in another Roman Catholic country. What he said. Not in a so-called Protestant country. 
a country which above all countries, even beyond any of the continental countries, spread the truth of Protestantism around the world. This country did that, but not today. We're wondering after the people. I don't mean you people are. You understand what I'm saying. As a nation, prophecy is being fulfilled in the United Kingdom. Let me read you a little more. Not that I should have been surprised. <clears throat> Listen to this. After all, the number of leading journalists who are committed Catholics is large. Do you believe the newspapers in Britain? Did you hear? This man must know what he's talking about. You, you don't stop to think. I wonder what the religion, what is the, the religious bias from which these uh, journalists are writing. But this man spells it out and spells it out well. I can only give you a little, a few brief statements, but I want you to catch his insights. The interesting thing is not, he said, that there are so many Roman Catholic journalists. The interesting fact is how few committed Protestants there seem to be. I worked as a young man for a period in the Australian public service. I can still remember the first day I walked into the office of that department, government, federal government department. I was in the account section, that's all, of the department and there were 35 of us working there at desks. At least I eventually got working at the desk. When I walked in, the boss called me over, the supervisor of the department. His first question to me was, where did you go to school? He was hoping I'd say to Maris Brothers or to St. Something School or, or to Christian Brothers College or, you know, one of the various Catholic schools in Australia. When I told him I went to the Newcastle Seventh-day Adventist School, he looked up aghast. Gasp! I wasn't one of them. Now, remember... At that time, a quarter of Australians were Catholics. So he shouldn't have been surprised that someone from the other 75% came in, but he was. There was a man setting two desks up and overheard our conversation. He stood up. You will be amused at what he said, Nick. He stood up and he said, What? You're not a Mick? I don't know whether they use that term for Catholics in Australia, but because so many of the Catholics had the name Michael in Australia, we used to call them mix, you see. And, and this Mr. Yabsley stood up and he said, You mean to tell me you're not a mick? Well, I said, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. He said, Hallelujah! Now we've got three out of 35 who aren't mixed in this department. 
3 out of 35. And 75% of Australians were Protestants, so-called. Now, I'm talking in the 1950s when I worked in that department. The judiciary, most of the judges. I tell you, the Irish names that are in amongst the judges in Australia, and they're not from Ulster, I can assure you, because so many Irish came to Australia. They were always revolting against the British, and so uh, they were sent there. And... Uh, The same is true in the education. The same is true amongst our politicians. I mean, America nearly turned over backwards when they got a Catholic president. Well, Catholic prime ministers of Australia are profuse. Many of them have been Roman Catholic. Never thought anything of. Leaders of the opposition. Ministers of the government. Full of them. No wonder all the world is wandering after beasts. The thing is, where are the wimps of Protestants today? Where are they? And this man has pointed that out. Another important thing that he said was that the reason that Protestants have gone down that some have desperately sought to make Christianity more accessible to the youth. Does that make you think not only of Protestant fallen churches? Is there another church that is doing the same thing and making the same mistakes? Is it our own beloved church? This man sees what is happening. And then he used a word that I'd never heard of in my life before. I don't expect to find uh, many words that I haven't heard of in a, in a newspaper. They usually don't go into erudite words. Some of you may know this word, being uh, very uh, literary English people. But this is what he said. Some have desperately sought to make Christianity more accessible to the youth by balderizing both scripture and services. Brethren and sisters, you students of the English language, balderizing, I thought. Never heard of it. But fortunately, Laura had an American dictionary. Now, it did spell it with a Z at the end instead of a, an S as the British do, uh, which is a common uh, distinction in the spellings of the two countries. But I found out that Balder was a, actually a human being. He was an Englishman who lived uh, in the last part of the 18th century and the first part of the 19th century. And Balder decided that he would do something. There were some parts that he didn't like in Shakespeare's play. So Balder sat down and he expurgated. He put out an expurgated edition of the plays of Shakespeare. In other words, he took parts out so that they would not be offensive. And so what this man, Niall Ferguson, is saying is that the Protestants have desperately sought to make Christianity more accessible 
to the youth by balderizing both scripture and services, by taking out that which they believe is offensive in scripture, that people don't want to hear, that people don't want to live up to. I tell you, I'm going to use that word balderizing more. It sort of does tell me something. It's another word I'm going to add to my vocabulary. It, it's a good word. Because that is exactly what is happening in our beloved church today. And if we are not careful, we will be sending our youth also wandering after the beast. And some of them are already. My dear brothers and sisters, Revelation 13 is being fulfilled before our very eyes. The link between Protestantism and progress especially the progress of literacy, material well-being and scientific knowledge, he goes on to say is very good. There is a good link. And you see that. You see countries that could be wonderful countries today, but they took on Catholicism. And that has held those mighty nations back. But do you think God is going to continue to bless Protestant nations that are forfeiting their heritage? No. No. Oh yes, there's still a little left of that blessing. But it cannot last. It cannot last. And this man noted that fact. And then his concluding sentence is this, and I hope there might be the odd amen. I don't usually call for amens. I hear in some sermons where a preacher says something and then he says, amen, hoping that everyone... Uh, I'm sort of not that sort of preacher. But at least in your heart, his final sentence. But I, for one, would not fancy the chances of a Catholic Britain in the 21st century. Amen. And neither would I, my dear brothers and sisters. But the way we are going, we are going that way. I'm sure you're aware of the recent matters that were discussed between the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglican Church here in Britain. Are we aware of that? Well, I'm reading from 19th of May, 1999, about six weeks ago. And this is from the, uh, the electronic London Daily Telegraph they, on, the, uh, on the website. This is what was the London Daily Telegraph put on the website, and uh, they dated it uh, the 13th of May, 1999. And I want you to listen. All the world, brothers and sisters, I like to bring to you what is happening in your country. When I was in Portugal the last three or four days, I did the same there and in, uh, in Spain to a lesser uh, degree. And when I held evangelistic meetings early in the year, I spoke to the Swedish people uh, there in uh, Warburg and spoke to them about what their country was doing. Not because I want to point the finger. What do you think I speak about when I'm in Australia? I speak about what's happening in Australia. We need to be aware in our own country. 
Well, let me read you. The Pope was recognised. Now, remember, this is the electronic Daily Telegraph of London. Just five or six weeks ago, the Pope was recognised as the overall authority in the Christian Church by an Anglican and Roman Catholic commission yesterday which described him as, now listen, a gift to be received by all the churches. Now that was not just some minor meeting of the Anglican and Catholic Church. That was under the jurisdiction of the Palace of Lambeth. And you know what that means. Disagreement about the extent of the Pope's authority was one of the main causes of the English Reformation of the 16th century. Praise the Lord, people did disagree in those days. But we're a long way from the 16th century in dear old Britain today. and has been a constant stumbling block to the two churches reuniting. However, oh, when that word comes, be worried. However, yesterday's statement released at Lambeth Palace, I'm sure I, the Englishman, know that that is where the Archbishop of Canterbury resides, accepted that if a new united church was created, it would be the Bishop of Rome who would exercise a universal primacy. Now that is the main church of your country. 26 bishops of that church sit in your House of Lords making legislative decisions. 26 of them. And here they're saying that if we unite, and that's where they're trying to move, the Pope will be the universal primate. Brothers and sisters, where is this nation of Britain going today? It is wandering after the beast. It is wandering after the beast. Dr. George Carey, you know who he is, the Archbishop of Canterbury, admitted that the text would be controversial I'm afraid it's not controversial enough in the minds of most Anglicans and Protestants today. There should have been such an outcry against this that the Archbishop of Canterbury would have had to put his hands over his ears to have a little bit of peace. But it hasn't happened. Oh yes, apparently there have been some mutterings. And what do you think of this? The commission concluded that the Bishop of Rome had a, and this is now in quotation marks, this is specifically uh, stated by them, a specific ministry concerning the discernment of truth. Truth. That the Pope has a ministry Concerning the discernment of truth, that is only one step away from saying he is the infallible interpreter of faith. Just one small step away. Brothers and sisters, all the world, including the United Kingdom, 
is wandering after the beast. What happened in Chile? I'm reading from the religious news summary of Religion Today and Goshen. This is a, an internet site in the United States. Protestant, Roman Catholics and Orthodox leaders in Chile have signed an historic agreement recognizing baptisms performed in each other's churches. Each church will honor all water baptisms, whether they're sprinkled or whether they're by immersion, whether they're the devil's counterfeit or God's uh, method, will all be recognized, uh, providing they are celebrated as a sacrament in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then it lists a whole list of churches. Some of these baptized by immersion. And they have now decided that if you were christened as a little baby and you want to then fellowship with a church that believes in adult baptism, they have to recognize that as a valid baptism and there should be no rebaptism. Brothers and sisters, let Seventh-day Adventists not fall into that trap. It's happening. All the world is wandering after the beast. And so the question that we posed at the beginning of this presentation is 1999. Will Revelation 13 be fulfilled in the days near at hand? The answer is it is already being fulfilled. And I just want to conclude by reminding you that there was another letter that the Pope put out last year that as I have spoken to many Seventh-day Adventists they knew nothing about. Now, the Pope wrote this letter on the 28th day of the month of May last year. May 28th last year. He called it Ad Tuendum Fidem. Ad Tuendum Fidem. Which means in the English language... Defending the faith. What faith do you think he meant? He didn't mean the Seventh-day Adventist faith, I'm telling you. Didn't mean that. He meant, of course, the Roman Catholic faith. That was completed only three days before Dias Domini. Now, I want you to get the link. Just get the link. Only three days before he was calling for civil legislation to uphold Sunday worship in Dies Domini. I hope you all noted that as you read it through. And he quoted from Pope Leo XIII, one of the greatest rascals that ever sat in recent times in the papal seat, who had no love of religious liberty at all. In fact, he had a horror of religious liberty. And I have quoted from him in this book, from that Pope, from his, the book of his encyclical letters. But the Pope 
in this ad to endum fidem, he brought in new canon laws. That means new church laws. And the shocking thing to me was that everyone was speaking about punishment. This was 1998. As I read it, I said, surely this is 1498. But no, it's 1998. And I want to read to you just one of those canon laws. The new canon law, 1436. I hope you don't have to learn every canon law of the Catholic Church. It would be quite a task. And I want you to listen to the very first word of this canon law. Whoever, brothers and sisters, every one of you, and myself included, where whoever's, means anybody. The word whoever means anybody. This is not saying a Roman Catholic uh, believer or member. It says, do you notice it? Whoever. And then listen. Whoever denies a truth. Who's the source of truth according to this Anglican Catholic statement? Whoever denies a truth which must be believed with divine and Catholic faith. Now, does that word Catholic, faith. Or who calls into doubt or who totally repudiates the Christian faith. Notice how they have cleverly used interchangeably Catholic and Christian. That is not done without malice of forethought. Make no mistake about that. Whoever denies a truth which must be believed with divine and Catholic faith, or who calls into doubt or who totally repudiates the Christian faith and does not retract. Does that bring back bells in your mind of the Reformation? Retract, retract, retract as those poor people were being tortured. And who does not retract. After having been legitimately warned is to be punished as a heretic. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, you don't have to be a very skilled student of history to know what the punishment, according to the Roman Catholic Church, of a heretic was. Bird of the state. We went to Bury St. Edmunds in 1995 for the World Camp Meeting. Who were there at that camp meeting? Just here at Bury. Well, I see quite a few of us were there. Do you remember when we went to see that spot where those martyrs were burned to death? You remember it. That was being punished as a heretic. Others were sent to vile dungeons, put on the rack, put in the galleys. Fearful, fearful treatment. And here we have in 1998 threatening punishment. And if you think that is not enough, it says in the second part, in addition to these cases, whoever obstinately rejects a teaching that the Roman pontiff or the college of bishops exercising the authentic magisterium have set forth to be held definitively 
or who affirm what they have condemned as erroneous and does not retract after having been legitimately warned is to be punished with an appropriate penalty. Now we all know what the Roman Catholic Church regards as an appropriate penalty. Everything is in place. Remember, this was whoever also. Another one said, another one of the new canon laws threatening punishment said, a person, once again, non-specific, and said they would receive a just penalty. Well, we also know what the Roman Catholic Church believes to be a just penalty. And as I talk on Sunday morning about what has been happening in Kosovo, I want to emphasize more the part that the United States is playing. The part that the United States is playing. Because we read in Revelation, we read in Revelation 13, verse 15, and he had power, that's the United States, to give his life, to give life unto the image of the beast. What did he have? Power. Where does the power of the papacy come from? Where does the military might come from? It comes primarily from the United States and then of all the foolish European members of NATO. It's true. And this country is one of those members. And in fact, not only one of these members, outside the United States in recent days, it has been the most prominent of the NATO leaders, the most aggressive it has. There are now 19 nations in NATO, counting the two across the Atlantic, Canada and the United States, 17 European nations. And here it is. It is saying that this second beast will give its power. That's where the power is going to come for the first beast to do its devilish work of upholding the mark of the beast. Brothers and sisters, I want to say to you that as earnestly as I can, we are in the last of the last days. Prophecy is being fulfilled. But you know, we are wasting our time here at this holy convocation. And I want to say this very sincerely. I am wasting my time. You are wasting your time. If all we have is this knowledge up here. Oh yes, we must have a knowledge of the truth. We must have a knowledge of the fulfillment of prophecy. But we have a God in heaven who died for us. He doesn't want the knowledge to stop there. He wants it to come down here. And if our hearts are not drawn to Christ, if we know all these things, but we have not accepted the character of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we are all the more culpable in the judgment. For we've had the knowledge, we've known the truth, but we, like the foolish virgins, have not permitted the Holy Spirit to work his work in our hearts. And we want to talk about some of these things tomorrow because I want to have a mixture in these meetings of bringing 
to our attention the fulfillment of these prophecies, but also to our attention the, the matters which are holding us back, the matters which are not bringing us as we should be to the foot of the cross, the matters that are holding back uh, the full impact of our ministries. I often think about it with my own ministry, Remnant Ministries, back in Australia. We aren't seeing Latterain power. Oh, yes, we're seeing wonderful work, and I'm blessed to see what so many lay people are doing. But we need much more power than we have now. We'll never complete the work until Jesus totally rules our lives. And that has to be an act of volition. He will never force that. And I'm praying that now the Sabbath hours, I'm sure, have come. And I want to close this meeting, this first meeting, by praying for God's blessing upon us in these Sabbath hours. Aren't you glad we're now in the holy hours of the Sabbath? Let's make this convocation a day of holiness, a day when we get rid of all the chit-chat of the world or of secular matters, and we think of the Lord, we think of God, we think of his mercy, we think of his joy. And most of all, we pray and we meditate upon his word. So let us ask the Lord to give us such a Sabbath and all who will attend. I know there will be more here tomorrow and it will be a joy to see the old friends from this dear country because I just love coming to England and as I said earlier on, this is a better time than ever because Glenys is with me and I wanted her to see England. You know, her father descended from north of the Tweed uh, and uh, it's so good for her to be back in the land for the well she did just tread feet when we went across for a few hours in London when we went across to the French camp meeting in 96 but that wasn't seeing England you know you've got to come to the Gaisleys of England to see England don't you the little villages and the the lovely fields and so forth. And, you know, although, of course, I am not by um, nationality British, but I've got those genes, English, Scottish, not to forget the Irish genes <laughs> that are surging uh, in my body. And, uh, you know, coming to England for me, is coming to a little bit of the old home country where our ancestors in the 1840s left to go to Australia and to try and build up another sort of England over there. But we are back here for a much better purpose than all those things. We're here because we are part of the one nation, the nation of God, every one of us. Every one of us have the genes of heaven and they're the genes I want more than anything else. Amen. Don't you, brothers and sisters? Where there's no east nor west, no north nor south, 
but just one great fellowship of love and a fellowship of God. Let us welcome in now the Holy Sabbath hours. Father in heaven, we are living, we are dwelling in a grand and awful time. But Lord, we are seeing as our spiritual ancestors never saw the rapid fulfillment of the last great events in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. These are awesome times. And as we usher in this holy Sabbath day, the best day of all the seven, place thy loving arms around each one of us. We recognize our hopelessness without those arms about us. But we're not going to look this weekend to our own weaknesses. That would only discourage us. We're going to look at the strength and the power of Almighty God. Oh, thank you for your love. Thank thee for thy goodness, thy mercy, thy graciousness. Thank thee for this truth found in thy word. And thank thee for great salvation. So bless us. And may thy Holy Spirit hover o'er us throughout the Sabbath hours to follow and into the weeks ahead till with great rejoicing we are caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and to be ever with him. Oh joy, what delight, what gratitude we will have and we thank thee in thy holy name. Amen.